Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I hope you had an amazing holiday and your new year is beginning really wonderfully. And um, I got a lot of great feedback on the part one of the people we've lost in the entertainment business that I've interviewed since I started this show almost a decade ago. And uh, I can't wait to share part two with you. I miss these people. I miss their voices talking to me in real time. It's not the same when you listen to interviews of them or see clips of them versus being able to sit across from them and and have amazing conversations that change lives. They've certainly all changed my life. Before I get started, I'd like to thank you so much for all your support. It's been incredible. You guys are amazing, and I'm, I'm so grateful for all of you. And if you want to reach me, you can do so at Instagram or Twitter or at BarryCats.com. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode. All right, welcome back to Industry Standard. This is part two of the ones we've lost. And I can't think of a more beautiful way to start this episode with a guy who was a big part of my life. I represented him. I produced television shows with him. I pitched with him. I hung out with him. And... He even made it a point when my mom was in town to to take her to his favorite spot at the Beverly Hills Hotel and have lunch with her. I'll never forget that day. And this guy has always impacted me because he always let me know what the possibilities were. He came from a family with so many children, I don't think you can count them on both hands. He was a child of alcoholic parents. He struggled with many different vices, but somehow he always prevailed with the funny. He was a guy who won three Humanitas Awards for a show he created, hosted a game show, and then seemed like he was exiled from Hollywood for over a decade. But lo and behold, he came back to win an Emmy Award for the show Baskets. I know you're going to love this. One of my favorites of all time. A man who I will miss till the day I take my last breath. One of the greatest comedians of all time. Louis Anderson. When I sit across from Louis... uh, I'm sitting across from somebody who has fought an army of demons, has fought every kind of situation, force of evil against you. And one of the things that I still watch almost every three months is something that no one is privy to watching is a little tiny pilot presentation you made about uh, 
your plight and how tough oh, it was. Complicated laughter. Complicated laughter where it showed you at your darkest moments yeah. and your greatest moments. I want you to speak to anybody out there in any profession, especially the arts, and tell them how it's possible to persevere when sometimes you feel like, fuck it. Mm. Well, you know, every single person that you pass on the street, every single one, every single president you see, every great movie star, every great actor, every great philosopher, every great teacher, everybody, everybody you pass by has a demon, has some demons, has has at some point in their life, to different degrees, come face to face with darkness. It's the reason that we can have so much light is because on the other side of it, you have to have an equal amount of darkness. I mean, you know, why do you think a sunrise is so beautiful? Is because you've been through night all night, you know? But why... Why does the darkness have to become a demon? Can you beautify? Can you beautify the darkness? Can you take an honest look and find in that darkness salvation? In the darkness, in this, in can I look at the horrible way my dad treated my mom? Can I find salvation in that? And I can. And the way you do it is that my mom and dad um, stayed together because the sum of who they were and their children were were greater than those incidents. Because, you know, everybody does things in their life that, you know, as a is is trouble and could cause people great pain. So, but if you make an attempt to reconcile your mistakes, to honestly make amends where you can, where it won't hurt the person, if you can do that, then you can release yourself of those things. You have to. You can't lay in that darkness. You can't live in that darkness. You can't you can't survive in that darkness without ha getting out into the light. You, you should look at it really good. You should look at it really hard, but you can't stay in it. And you have to find beauty in it. You have to be able to look at the dead garden or whatever it is in your, you know, everybody has a metaphor for it, you know? Like if you ever look in the closet and go, geez, what am I going to clean this stuff out? When am I going to look at the storage? When am I going to clean this stuff out? Well, you probably are never going to clean it out because, you know, in order to clean it out, you should clean it out because you know why people have storage spaces because their memories connected to the stuff and they think that they'll lose the memories if they lose the stuff, but they won't lose the memories. You know, the memories are there and it's all part of us. What makes up Louis Anderson is a a really uh, a fat little kid who grew up into an adult who's complicated and has struggles still every day but who at the end of it is about love 
who, because love, love in all those situations, you know, I was able to forgive my father. If you get a chance and you want to find out about forgiveness, read my book, Dear Dad, the letters I wrote to my dad 10 years after he died. One of the greatest books you'll ever read by a comic and a dramatic book. Thank you. They asked him to do a comedic book. And he delivered them a dramatic book. Yeah. And believe it or not, you talk about dramatic acting, dramatic writing. Your highest selling book you've ever wrote in your life is? Dear Dad. That's right. And I'll just tell you a quick little story about Dear Dad. People come up to me all the time and say it changed their life. It made their relationship with their dad. But I'll, I'll just like the one that it really is like a little highlight. So Evil Knievel came to my show and I... And he was Evil Knievel. And I go, Evil Knievel, you're at my show. Evil Knievels, I'm telling people, Evil Knievels at my show. I said, uh, Evil, is that what you call him? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but we talked and he was sweet and he had a cute little chick with him. And he was just who he was. And I knew who he was. You could, you know, he's a, he was a daredevil. And um, I gave him a copy of Dear Dad and... The next time I saw him, he said, yeah, that book, you know, I reconnected with my my son after that. Wow. And I thought, you know, that's a really great thing. So they reconnected after that. Wow. So that's it. So just to sum this up about the darkness, get out of the darkness, get in some light. But don't think that the darkness isn't a beautiful place, too. But just don't wallow in it and don't let it kill you. Don't let it kill you. Reach out. Even if you don't want to reach out and it's completely uncomfortable, reach out. Call me. Call Barry. Call the people that you know. Call anybody because nobody's going to refuse your car, your call, or your car. Um, they won't refuse your call. You know, don't be persistent. One of my favorite things to say. Be persistent. Be persistent about getting better, you know, because you got to stay in this body this carcass while you're alive. So why don't you make it a better place to stay in, you know, sweep out all those memories that are killing you. You know, you know, you are holding on to those on purpose because they, they give you some comfort. You got to stop doing that. You got to stop holding on to that stuff. You know, you know, get up and get up and get going, get away from all that stuff. Fantastic. You're worth it. People are worth it. Which is what we talked about early on yeah. about when you're a manager and a client. Yeah. As a manager, I just want to let every client know that you're worth it. You're worth it. And, you know, comics, you're special people. You know, you're the truth tellers. Don't be afraid to tell the truth. But don't be afraid to celebrate yourself and be funny and be loving. And I just keep saying to people, be loving. Love right. is really powerful. What advice do you have for the young artist or the young person in the business or anyone in the business coming up who's starting off and they see this business ahead of them that is just so daunting and like they want to get to the mountaintop, but they're right at the base of the mountain and they don't know how to navigate and get there properly. If you had some words of wisdom for anybody in the entertainment world or any world for that matter, to get to the next level, what would it be? To do what you're doing, the best you can do, and the mountain will come to you. 
if you are an artist and you're making clay pots, make the clay pots the best until the guy that makes the that used to make the clay pots, till their people say, well, this is the new clay pot maker. If you're a dancer, get the best training in dancing and just dance. You know, if you're an artist, paint your photos. I mean, take your pictures if you're a photographer, paint your artwork if you're an artist. If you're a comedian, kill it every night. Work hard on your act. It's all you have. It's your credentials. It's a passport into show business. Your act. Don't take it so lightly and don't tell me you have an hour of material. I barely have an hour. Because just imagine my life depended on it. I think I could put together a solid hour out of my six one-hour specials. I think. And I'm talking about jokes that always worked. I'm talking about jokes that every single time worked. Because don't, don't lie to yourself. You know? Don't lie to yourself. Work harder and stop. You know, if you're trying, you're lying. You should just be doing it. Stop lying to yourself. You know, and find a good friend like Abraham Geisness. He saved me from, he, he made me a better comic, a better person. And he and he's a creative guy who makes my side of the creativity even better. Find a person like Barry Katz. Find your person who you're good with because comics are one-sided. We're two-dimensional, believe it or not. We need the third dimension. Find your third dimension and just glorify yourself in it. Coming up next is a guy who had a long, long career as a host of a game show (laughs) that changed a lot of people's perceptions of what success was in that genre. An incredible man who really, really moved me a lot when I interviewed him. And he was a guy who was way, way down the line in years, but had so much wit and so much knowledge and so much wisdom of what it takes to get from nothing to something really special in this business where you're a household name and everyone knows who you are. Ladies and gentlemen, Monty Hall. So take me to where you were, what kind of surroundings you grew up in, your family life, sometime before that first moment that came into your mind. I'd like to be in the entertainment business. And what was the thing that happened? A lot of life before that happened. A lot of life. I was born, as you said, in Winnipeg, Canada, in a family that was was just struggling to make a living. My father tried very hard to make a living during the Depression. My mother had to go out and work for a while, but when my father was ill. And uh, it was a family that had uh, had to bite the bullet an awful lot. But we managed, because of a lot of love in the family, to to persevere. And then I was very sick as a child. I had a terrible scalding accident, and then I had double pneumonia. And they'd given me up for, well, they they gave me up. You said uh, a scalding accident. Yes, I I was a kitchen accident with boiling soup. Don't, let's not get into it. But it was bad. And I survived it, although I was in bandages for a month. They fed me through straws for a month. And then I recovered. I was so weak that I got double pneumonia, and they put me in oxygen tents, and and then the doctor said to my parents, he has been so ravaged by these illnesses that he don't expect him to live to the age of 20. 
So at the age of 20, I called the doctor, <laughs> but he was dead. <laughs> and so every decade after that, and my 30th, 40th, 50th, 67th, every, every decade, I stopped and say to myself, my goodness, I made it through another decade, another 10 years, another five years, another year. How many doctors have you outlived? All of them. <laughs> I have to go recruit new doctors all the time. <laughs> No, it was it was a very tough a tough youth, uh, because of all the illnesses. I was homeschooled by my mother, who was a former teacher, so that when I did finally go back to school, they they didn't know what to do with me. They accelerated me. I was so far ahead of the other students because of the homeschooling that I graduated high school at fourteen. I was small. I was short. I was fourteen years old, and uh, there was no we had no money to go to, to college, so I went to work at my father's butcher shop as a delivery boy. At the age of fourteen, I think that saved my life. Because being so weak and ravaged that working on that bicycle, delivering parcels to sub-zero weather and so on, built me up physically. I think that contributed to the fact that I I could I could survive, and uh, I, I we raised enough money for me to go back to one year of college, and I dropped out, and then I was working in a clothing wholesale. And uh, a man who had a manufacturing business across the road from the hole, so I came in one day to do business with my boss. He saw me washing the floors. And he said, I, he later said, I think I know who that kid is. He looks familiar to me. So I asked the boss who it was and told him. So he went and he saw my father later that day. And he said, you know, I saw Monty washing floors. And the said, what is he doing washing floors? Why shouldn't he be at school? And my father said, well, we ran out of funds. And he said, does he want to go back to college? If so, tell him to come and see me tomorrow. This man was only 29 years old. 29 years old. He had been left this business by his father. He was a man about town. And uh, not considered an outstanding citizen because he was always flouting. He was always around town with different people, different parties, and no one expected him to be the kind of person that would take a look at a youngster and say, I want to help him at the age of 29. So I went to see him the next day, and he said, if you want to go back to college, I'll give you the money, but you have to go by my rules. You can't be a dilettante. You have to get a B-plus average or better. And I want you to see your report card every month. You must never tell anybody where the money came from. you got to promise to do this for somebody else someday. I mean, all these rules from a 29-year-old man and I lived with those rules, and I obeyed them, and I did it. I only broke one rule. Years later, when I wrote my book, I dedicated it to him, and I said, I broke one rule. I had to tell the world who gave me the money. Remember, he told me to keep it a secret, but I didn't. I wanted the world to know what a wonderful person he was. And because of him, I went back to college, and I got my Bachelor of Science degree, and uh, I was student body president. I had a, a great career. I was a five-letter man in athletics. I'm starring in all the college productions. What a life I had at college. But uh, Why do you think that 29-year-old man who had money and could give money to any single kid in that whole area, what do you think it was about you that he wanted to give that money to you? Well, very, uh, years later, when I was with him, uh, I, I said to him, his name is Max Freed. I said, Max, why did you do this for me? Why did you choose me? He said, I don't know. I, I saw something in you. Maybe I saw something in you that I saw something in myself in you that I should have done. I should have gone to college. And I wanted to do something for somebody, give a kid a chance. 
and uh, and he he vicariously lived his my life and his life together all through the years. So much so that when I went to see him in Winnipeg when he was ninety nine years old, I heard he was ill in a retirement home, and I went up to see him. and was sitting alone with him, and he was ninety nine percent blind and deaf. And I had to reach very close to him and talk very loud in his ear. And at one point I said to him, Max, I said, you gave me a life. And he looked up and he says, no, Monty. He says, you gave me a life. Because he lived vicariously. Everything that I accomplished was something that he took to his heart too. And uh, we this this bond we had between us all, all our lives. I only met him on a couple of occasions because he lived in Florida and Canada. And I saw him in Winnipeg. Uh, many, many years later, and I think I went up there and I, I think it must have been my 50th birthday or something like that, many, many years ago. And then I saw him one other time and then the last time I saw him when I saw him was 99. And a great story, but it's also an inspiration story because because of his investment in me, I managed to do such wonderful things for other people. So it's what is one of the expression pay it forward, do it for somebody else. I don't know what they said, but I, I know that by his investment to me, a lot of people benefited. And that's the way it should be. Incredible story. So tell me what your first moment was or inspiration to be in show business. My mother was an actress and she was acting in local productions in Winnipeg and I acted in some of her little little theater productions I didn't have too many speaking lines I remember I was about 6 or 7 years old and by first I was on a stage and I sat at the end of a table and she said you have no lines no words just sit there and smile and don't ask any questions just sit there that was my first performance <laughs> I had no lines no residuals <laughs> but I I loved what I was doing and then when in high school I started doing some acting in high school but it was at college when I auditioned. I got the lead in a college musical. And f the director of that musical also was a television, uh, rather, no one knows he's radio. He's a radio producer on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, and he hired me to do a dramatic role while I was at college. And that opened up a lot of gates for me because then I, because of that, I got a job at a radio station working nights for the few years while I was going to college. It helped me a bit. And, of course, the Army show was a great thing. The Army Show was the best testing ground you can imagine, because in the Army Show... Explain uh, to our audience what an Army Show is. Well, there's a unit that went around to all the camps, entertaining the Navy camps, the Air Force camps, the Army camps, and you put on shows for the troops. And in the show, I was the MC, and I sang, and I acted, and I did one-liners, I did blackout sketches, burlesque stuff. It was a great training, stage training for me. And uh, that helped me when I went into television, because... Being able to stand up there on a stage in front of a thousand troops and perform without a script is great training for you. And uh, while I was at the radio station, working at nights and going to college in the daytime, when I graduated, I went to work at the radio station full time. And then one day my boss called me in and he said, here's a map of Toronto. I marked off where all the radio stations are. And he handed me the map. I said, what's that mean? He said, you should go. I said, am I fired? No, 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 you're not fired at all. We love you here, but if you stay here, you're going to end up like all these old geezers. They're not going anywhere. You are going somewhere, but you're not going to do it in this small city. You've got to go to the major city of Toronto. So I went home and said to my folks that night, I'm going to Toronto. And my mother said, do you have a job? I said, no. She said, well, how, how can you go? 
I said, I know my boss told me to go, so I'm going. And I went. And that started a whole new career in Toronto. How old were you then? I was 24 years old. Got it. So you were living at home until you were 24, and now your first time you're going to a city and you're getting an apartment and you're trying to make it. It wasn't an apartment. It was a room in a rooming house is what it was. But uh, I, I, after a while, I, I, I auditioned at a few stages. I got a job, and uh, now I find myself making $40 a week and uh, living on 20 and sending 20 home. <laughs> and uh, that's where I met Marilyn. Uh, through a mutual cousin, I met Marilyn, uh, and uh, a year and a half later, we were married. And I was working, television started, and I got in on the ground floor. Now, they say that a woman knows within five minutes of meeting a man if she's going to be with him. Did she know? I knew. I don't know that she knew. But uh, she was 18 years old when I met her, and I was 24, so... Is that legal? Well, we didn't get married until she was 20. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, we struggled in Toronto. It was quite tough. I mean, there was only one network, and if you didn't work at the network, you didn't work at all. And I had show, I had three shows on the air, and they were all Castle, and and I had a little radio show that kept me going. And I decided to go off to New York and try my luck in New York. And that was back in 1955, and I pounded on a lot of doors for a lot of months. Commuting back and forth to Toronto, keeping my little radio show. Did you have anybody representing you? Did no, you? nobody would represent an unknown kid. I met an agent once, and he said, "He said, where are you from? I said, I'm from Canada. He says, Canada? Do they have television up there? I said, of course they do. He says, yeah, I thought they only had hockey players and Royal Canadian Mounted Police. <laughs> but, uh, so you couldn't get an agent. You couldn't no, get a manager. I knocked on doors. I knocked on doors. I knocked on doors and, and did all kinds of things to get attention. And after six months, I finally broke through and got a show. The first show I got was a show on NBC called Sky's the Limit, where I got a show emceeing that show. I had uh, met the um, I met the president of the network uh, of NBC at that time, and he said at lunch, I was writing notes back and forth trying to get an appointment. He said, I like, I like those little letters that you sent me. He says, take a look at a show I have called Sky's the Limit. Tell me it's not doing well. Give me an analysis. Watch it for a week. So I watched it. I sent him a whole thesis on it, and he called me back in Toronto. He says, you got the job as a producer and the MC." I said, holy mackerel, just, I'll just take the MC and keep the producer. So you and didn't that, want the producer credit? Well, I didn't want both at the same time. That was too much for me. So I moved down to New York. My folks, my wife and two babies were in Toronto. And after five months, I said to Marilyn, sell the house. We had a little house, sell the house, and I rented a home in Mount Vernon, New York, and I went to the airport and picked them up. Now, this is an incredible story. I went to the airport and picked them up and brought them back to Mount Vernon, 241 Pennsylvania Avenue. I still remember the address. As we drove up to the house, I said to my wife and kids, this is your new home in your new country. It's the United States of America, and this is your new home. And we walked in, the phone was ringing. It was NBC. Your show was canceled. <laughs> Barry, I wasn't laughing. But is, is that an incredible thing? After all those months and all that time, the day that I brought him back from the airport, the show was canceled. And you know what I did? I said, Marilyn, I saved up a few hundred dollars. We're going off to Florida for a vacation. And I remember my friends saying to me, how can you go? You're unemployed. I said, I'll be unemployed when I come back, too. But, <laughs> but I'm, going to, I'm going to take this time to just blow it, have the money, and start all over again. And we did. And was your wife 
when that call came in, was she horrified or was she supportive and she believed in you that you would Amazingly, get she took it better than I did. She, uh, very stalwart. Uh, you know, she'd been working, she'd been living in Toronto for months with the kids alone, being the mother and the father to these kids while I was back in New York. And she was very brave about the whole thing. And, uh, she had a lot of faith. In, but I remember what she said to me one day, I'm sitting in our home in Ron Vernon and, uh, she said, get up, go to the station, get on the train, and go to New York. I said, well, I don't have any. She says, go and see anybody. Go visit anybody. Drop in on somebody. She says, I married you for better or worse, but not for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went in, and, and we persevered, and up and down, and up and down. We, it took it took a, about a year or so to, before I, I finally got something. But it it was not an easy climb in a new country, strange country, getting losing your show, having been all alone, but uh, perseverance and belief in yourself. Whenever I think of my next guest, I feel very, very sad because I know that we all create our own destiny and we all figure out ways to get where we're supposed to go and sometimes we don't get to the places we feel we should go because of forces that come along and snatch it from our grasp. But this was one of the greatest agents that I ever met, an incredible salesperson, but a guy who had that Jerry Maguire mentality where he always wanted to kind of offer and figure out how to influence the opinions that he had to make things better on people sometimes that maybe didn't want to do it his way. And throughout his tenure in this business, he went through an enormous amount of ups and downs, not only professionally, personally, physically, health-wise, but at the end of the day, he always seemed to come up on top and create something that was really special for somebody in the business that swore by his representation. This guy has been very impactful on my life, and he died way too young. John Ferreter. I'd like to go way, way back. Okay to where you grew up, your family life, school, friends, and what was your first inspiration that told you, hey, I want to be in the entertainment business? Good, really good question. Uh, I was an army brat, so I grew up all over. I was born in Tacoma, Washington, lived in several places, probably 10, 11 different houses that we lived in until um, I became 11. Uh, my dad retired from the army. We lived up at Lake Tahoe uh, for a couple of years when they were kind of building ski resorts. He was involved in launching Tahoe Donner up there. I went to high school in Pebble Beach and went to college at UC Santa Barbara. It's probably sometime while I was at UCSB. Um, I was doing radio. I started doing radio broadcasting when I was in high school. 
helped start a station that's still in existence up at uh, my high school, KSPB FM in Pebble Beach. I worked for a couple commercial stations at Santa Barbara. I was the program director of KCSB, and then I worked for a commercial outlet, KTMS AM and FM. And it was sometime at that point when I thought I would do something in the entertainment business. I always thought it would be in radio. And then I was at KCSB when we put Jim Rome on the air. And I remember when Jim Jim Rome, the big sportscaster. One of the most innovative and groundbreaking sports talk radio guys in history. And I remember when I was listening to Jim Rome and a couple of these other guys who were doing uh, uh, radio, I went, I can never do what those guys can do. Like, that's real radio talent. I'm a guy who likes radio. <laughs> these guys are real radio talent. And that was kind of it for me when I said, I got to figure out something to do in the business. I had started playing in a band. We were terrible. I think we were the world's worst band for a while. Actually, that's not true. We were the world's worst band for a while. But with everything, the more you play and the more you rehearse and the more you practice, you get better. And uh, I realized I wasn't real real good at playing other people's songs. So I would just start writing my own. And the more we wrote, the better we got and started building an audience. And that was one of the things that brought me down to Los Angeles because I was writing, uh, recording and producing. So when I moved down here in April of uh, 1988, I really thought I was going to come down and pursue a recording career or do something with the record companies. I got into the agency business on a fluke. I started meeting different agents around town in 1990. And I would ask everybody, what do they do? What's that guy do? I was at the Universal Amphitheater. I'd be backstage there. And I had friends that worked there. So I'd go to the shows for free. And I, I'd see these guys. They'd all huddle in a certain area, eat a couple crackers, eat some cheese, <laughs> drink a sparkling water or a beer. Probably a beer at that point before they all went AA. Um, but I'd watch how these guys dealt with other people. And I'd say, who is that guy? And they'd go, oh, that's John Marks. He co-runs the music department at William Morris. He's got men at work and blah, blah, blah. And I watched these people and I, I, I liked what they did. So I thought, I can be a music agent. That's what I, you know what? And I think I applied to a couple of the agencies and everyone <laughs> said, I remember one interview where the uh, woman said, uh, your hair is too long and you look like you're wearing your father's suit. <laughs> Another thing I notice when I'm sitting across from John Ferrer, the way he dresses is classy, but he always dresses in a suit that does appear like it could be relevant <laughs> 50 years ago. Like he's wearing this incredible timeless black suit. He's got the black standard kind of shoes that could be worn today or 50 years ago. But the key tip off is what I always love. Almost always he wears a vest. Well, I've got to go over to the Ringo auction later. So. <laughs> and who knows, Twiggy could come walking in here. I want to be relevant. 50 years ago, 1966, 50th anniversary of Good Vibrations. 50 years of Good Vibrations. Let's <laughs> celebrate it. So, no, no the, 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 the truth is, I just, when I came to Los Angeles and I got immersed in the city, I, it just opened my eyes. And... I started going to comedy clubs. I'd never really gone to comedy clubs. I'd seen Jay Leno because he'd drive up on his motorcycle and he'd do a club in Santa Barbara at like 730 at night. And then he'd drive back to L.A. and do three clubs. So I'd seen stand-ups. But when I walked in, really, about 1990, and I started going to comedy clubs and I'd go to the improv or some of these places, I mean, 
it was a fertile ground. You saw amazing stuff. There were some of the biggest stars of our time that were getting up on that stage and doing 10 minutes, you know, and working their material out. And so you're a William Morris. You're hiding this guy's dialysis. You're learning at mock speed. How do you get your first break to be promoted to an agent? And who was your first client that people turned around as you walked in the hallway and said, what the fuck? How did he how yeah. do, you do that? This is a new guy. How did he get to this point? First client was Jerry Garcia from The Grateful Dead. Holy shit. And the way I got Jerry is I picked up the phone and I called him. And I said, do you have an agent? And I knew uh, his... How could he not have an agent? He didn't. I knew his attorneys up in Marin County who handled his estate planning and his tax accounting. Here's a little tip for everybody out there if you want to be a representative. Get to know the business managers. Get to know the estate planners. Those are the people you want to get to know for your clients because your clients talk to them every day. Clients talk to their managers. They talk to their PR people. They rarely, if ever, speak with their agents, as we both know. <laughs> it's usually us as managers who have to speak to the agents. And the agents, you know, there are a couple of good agents out there. There are a couple of great agents out there, but there are a lot of really bad agents, really bad that are out there. Uh, but the ones who are good are good, you know, and, and you want to be partnered with them because they're good at what they do. They're fearless and you have to be fearless. But you just have to figure out who, if you want to sign someone, who do they talk to on a daily basis? And you better be in that person's life. Tell me the non-scripted agents that you respect. The ones who basically primarily package non-scripted shows, which is more in your world. Well, it's going to sound weird because I've had different experiences and I've read so many emails. So I know how people think. And when you read someone's email and you see different parts about their character. Because email does not reflect tone. Uh, but if you read some of that stuff, it makes it hard to respect certain people because of what they put in print. Black and white, you know, when it's in black and white, it just doesn't read well, no matter, you know, no matter what you say. Email should really be used for nine o'clock, yes, you know, Bedford and Wilshire. I mean, things that are black and white. You can preface something. Like if you want a client to make more money on something, you could send an email to the people saying, listen, it's a new year. I love you guys. You're so wonderful. But I don't really think that the rate that you're paying from last year is going to work this year. And you could just say, I love you guys or whatever it is. And they could be like, ah, oh, Jesus, that mother absolutely charging us more money again. Why won't this guy be happy? God damn it. He always makes our life so miserable. And then he throws in the I love you just to think that, hey, it's going to pacify us. It's like there's no winning. The winning is staying in the game. You go through William Morris, you're kicking ass, you start representing these people, you start putting shows together. What's the first show that you put together where people in the hallway were like, what the fuck, he did it again? Um, good question. I worked on a lot of different things, but the ones where people started turning their heads, there were specials that we would do because this was, you got to remember, in the early 90s, 
my job was really to take all of the clients and all the managers who were complaining and just get them work. So it was a director on a game show here. It was a sidekick on a show. It was some actor getting them a host gig. It was some host reporter getting them a radio gig. My job, I was the drain. Everything that fell down to the bottom of the drain, I collected it at the drain and then figured out, you know, where to put it all. Then... I started selling various pilots and things here and there. I remember the first sitcom pilot was with a uh, Def Jam comedian named Teddy Carpenter. Of course, from Washington, D.C. Absolutely fantastic. And and Teddy would call me and uh, Teddy would always say, listen here, I got to talk to you. So I actually went out and I bought a five-minute egg timer and I had it on my desk. So whenever Teddy would call it, flip it over because I knew I had to get off within five minutes. If not, he'd go for an hour. <laughs> and I loved the guy. He was great. And I did two things with him. I sold a sitcom with him, and then he was going to be the next Arsenio Hall. Well, I did a big Tribune late-night deal, which ultimately didn't go to series because the guy who bought it quit, went to uh, 20th at the time. Uh, Donnie and Marie was a big one. I had inherited Marie Osmond. She was a great client. She was a very good friend. And Donnie was pitching a talk show with like Maureen McCormick or someone like that and no one was buying it and I met Donnie's manager and I said if we put them back together we can sell this and get it on the air and she looked at me like I was the devil she didn't want to have anything to do with me and I said look you're going to get a talk show and they're going to pay Donnie like 500000 if I put Donnie and Marie together they're going to get 2 million plus a year you know each of them let's work this out and his manager was smart at the time, and she said, if you really think you can do that, and there was an attorney involved who vouched for me, you know, basically said to the manager, John's a good guy. He's not like the rest of these guys. He'll actually do what he says he's going to do. So that was a big one, put them together and put that back on the air. But th look, there have been so many. And we went through this one period once we started selling all the non-scripted shows where it was like we were selling a show every other day. You know, Millionaire went on. I remember we all looked at the tape when it was sent over originally. It was called Cash Mountain. Went through a couple of changes, whatever. Became Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Bam, goes on the air. And it was Michael Davies. Michael Davies was the buyer who bought it. Oh, he was the buyer. And then we went in to service the show, and we gave him a list of potential hosts, and Regis was on the list. And I remember they passed on Regis at first. They were like, what about Bob Costas? What about, you know, Al Michaels? They were looking at all these sports guys. And then... I believe it was, oh, I forget his name, but the guy who ran the ABC O&Os at the time, Walter something, um, he was like, what about Regis? This will help our show. And then Michael uh, Davies, to his credit, then got religion, and he made it happen for Regis, and then he didn't like any of the producers he was meeting with, so he quit his job at ABC and became the producer of the show, made millions, produces all kinds of shows. It was a genius move by Mike, and I always had a very hot and cold relationship with him because I had previously sold him a late-night show at Buena Vista uh, with John Sally, who was going to be the other next Arsenio. Which was a travesty of what happened to John Sally. It was a great pilot. It was cleared in almost 90% of the country, and then there was a switch to Keenan Ivory Wayans. There was a substitution. <laughs> there, was, there was a timeout. There was a substitution. They gave the deal to Keenan because they were worried about Magic's show launching, and they were afraid that if Magic worked, that would make it impossible to have two basketball players in the late night. And if Magic didn't work, it would make it impossible because people would say, we just you know tried it with a basketball player. 
So yeah, that was a tough one. And Michael and I had, had gone through the, um, the wars on it, but the irony was we later came together and did a lot of good business. And I actually have a tremendous amount of respect for him. Now he's a great producer, understands TV. He's still a fan of TV and he makes some great shows. Yeah. And John Sally was a guest here and it was an amazing podcast. John's great. What advice do you have for the young executive out there or the young artist who has a dollar and a dream and wants to try to get to the next level and to fight through all the craziness and the navigation, the adversity that an executive or an artist has to get to to get to the next level? Well, I wish I had always taken my own advice that I'm about to give because I certainly have made mistake after mistake, but continue to learn and get better from it. The first thing is understand that you don't know everything and nobody you're dealing with knows everything. You can always learn. You can always get better. Number two, never get in a car in Los Angeles if you have to pee. And number three, and the most important... <laughs> Do not sleep your way to the middle. <laughs> oh. My next guest was a guy that I knew forever. Knew him as a stand-up comic. Knew him as a writer. Knew him as a executive producer and a creator. He's worked with some of the greatest artists in the world. Most notably, Dennis Miller, who throughout his heyday, created some of the greatest moments in television. An incredibly smart man who just knew so much about the art of writing a joke, but also understood his own strengths, his own limitations, who he could write best for, what he could create, and consequently had great relationships with some of the most brilliant, unique, and twisted minds in the business. I will always remember him. I will always remember the day that I came into his house and interviewed him with his friends. A wonderful, wonderful man. A special, special artist. Kevin Rooney. I know you took certain sitcoms for the money, but let's do this. Let's pretend the money's the same. Mm -hmm. Do you rather work with the guy who is doing great comedy but more mainstream and it's always no drama or the person who's doing something completely outside the box well, that I'll, there's drama? I will flatter myself and say that I would rather work on the more artistically interesting show and more uh, aggressively comedic show. Despite the despite trials the, and tribulations. Yeah, despite that. Because I've never worked with anybody that's so bad you can't get along with them at some, you know, most of the time. Dennis wasn't hard to get along with when we were friends. It wasn't, wasn't a problem. And Jay, I love, he's a great friend, so I, didn't, I haven't had that to make that. But given the, oppor given the opportunity, I think you want to work on the more challenging show, the one that has more cachet, the one that, would, that you could walk around town and say, somebody says to you, well, what shows do you work on? You want to say, I wrote uh, Seinfeld. I wrote Fleabag. You want to say that. Yeah, sometimes you don't want to say what show you were on. But <laughs> I never really disavowed writing on any shows. None of them were that bad, but some of them were just not challenging or, or flattering to have been on, you know? I thought the thing that always might have been 
difficult for you in stand-up where the needle didn't always move exactly where you wanted it to is because you're that guy who just plants his feet and delivers the jokes. In other words, you could be blind and hear your jokes and, and think they're funny, but sometimes people look at certain personalities in comedy and they want right. them to be a certain way, and you were more like Herb from accounting, right. delivering tremendously clever jokes. You know, you had that <laughs> presence about you. That's nice. Well, I will say, I think that audiences uh, enjoyed my act much better if they were blind. You're right about that. <laughs> You're right about that. Yeah, so I always felt like even when I went to see you, and I'd see you a lot in the back of the right. room, I'd right. be like, God, this guy is so clever, so amazing. But I think sometimes in that time in the 80s, if I right. could say something that you might disagree with. Okay. That was a time when your personality and your character had to be overblown. And you were just a regular guy who was somebody's brother or their father or... Well, I used to think about that at the time. The, like with Jay, I watched Jay go from a comic, a well-known uh, comic in the comedic circles to the celebrity status he got, you know, over the course of getting the Tonight Show and the co-host and all that stuff. And I realized he was a three-dimensional person and he presented three-dimensional kind of material. And so it took a while for the audience to catch on to him like it does if you're just walking around, if you're meeting people, normal people take a little while to sink in. But a two-dimensional person who's kind of cartoonish latches onto your head faster. That's why Drew Carey always had the, the suit with the big glasses, and he became a cartoon that you could always recognize. And people who were, like you are saying, overblown characters are basically uh, two-dimensional, and you can really latch onto them. So those people become, they, they, I think they get traction faster, and they're memorable. Especially during that period of time where it was right. a critical time for you. Right, it was memorable. So I did not pay attention to... You know, I, I, we were talking about it with Jimmy, uh, who we'll talk to in a little bit. I was talking about it with him yesterday that uh, we're watching politicians try and form, you know, try and get traction with the public. They don't know a lot of the things that you eventually learn when you're a performer in stand-up, how to make your look complement your material and make your voice complement your material. Like I think Jave Chappelle, for instance, his voice and his presentation is so of a piece it's just fantastic, so strong. Not only is material genius, material, but Absolutely. the way he talks, the way he looks, the way he moves are all part of a piece. So uh, I did not do that. I didn't make sure, like, for instance, my hair, when I was bald then, which I am now, I, had to, I was still growing my hair longer a little bit to try and pretend I had some of it. It didn't go along with my material, and my, my dress didn't really go along with my material. I should have worn a suit and, you know, shaved my head like I do now and been more precise with the, I like my material to be precise, and I should have looked precise, and I should have worked on my voice more, you know. But I didn't think about those things because I wasn't thinking in terms of, I wasn't a showman. I wasn't a president. I didn't want to be a, a showman. I just thought, I'm just me talking. I wanted that to be the thing that people liked, not a crafted look and presentation. So... I think you're right, uh, truly, that three-dimensional, actual, fully-formed people are less memorable on the first time you meet them than a cartoon who comes out and blows up. You know, I got my funny glasses on, I got my funny suit, I'm screaming. That sticks into a person's head, you know, audience member's head. And so they, I think they can get traction faster. And that, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Traction. All these people today on Facebook and Twitter trying to... Instagram, it's all about trying to get traction with an audience and getting some kind of recognition and be memorable. So 
Some people come out with memorable material and other people come out with a firecracker in their ass. <laughs> what advice do you have for the young person growing up in a remote area in a room in a barn somewhere right, right. where his father lost all the savings right. and who has like the dollar and a dream to go for their goal? Yeah, and that's how do they get to have the kind of career not only as a stand-up comedian but as a writer in talk and sitcoms? Well, you might as well try. <laughs> you have no idea if it's going to work. It is that cliche of just keep doing it and uh, whatever it is that you enjoy, do it. Just do, do what you enjoy. I guess I did what I like to do, hang around, talk to people, and get a few laughs, and I did not do what I didn't want to do. So I just refused and found some way to make ends meet without doing what I didn't want to do. And if you... Uh, are unhappy with where you're at, just do something else and keep pushing at it. The door will open. I just thought show business for me, it felt like you're on the outside of a big room and you walk around the outside and keep pushing and keep pushing and somewhere there'll be a door that'll pop open. And when the door does pop open, go in and then don't lean on the wall. <laughs> go in and stay away from the walls because the door will open and pop you out. So. When, when, the, when the magic door opens, go in, keep moving forward, and just keep taking work. Any work that, any work that, that you can, take it, stay in the room, and just keep, keep going forward, keep taking the jobs. And don't get uh, comfortable and lean on the wall, it'll, it'll fall out. I don't, really know, I don't really know how I got here, but I was nice to get here. I look around here, I think this is, a, like, John, like Ron was saying earlier, this is the oh, holy shit moment ago. I'm up here in this house, and uh, I always wanted to have a sports car, and I do. Always wanted to marry a beautiful woman, and I did. I got my little dogs, got great friends, funny friends. Got some shrubbery. <laughs> <laughs> and a glass of water. And it's been good seeing you again, Barry. You're not pushing that Ferrari around anymore. <laughs> <laughs> No, I met, uh, met Barry, and every time I'd see Barry, he was pushing a Ferrari. <laughs> pushing it into a parking place in front of the improv, or pushing it out of a parking place in front of the improv. <laughs> hey, Barry, nice Ferrari. It was, like, it was about as useful to him as a charm on a bracelet. <laughs> what are you taking? What are you, what are you driving to today, Barry? I'm driving the little pig on my bracelet. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everybody, I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to BarryCats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. 
Up next is a guy who was one of the greatest attorneys in the world, representing some of the most extraordinary artists that you could ever imagine, including Michael Jackson. This guy knew the art of the deal before the word deal was probably ever invented. He is so iconic, so incredible, so well-known. Anybody in this town who calls themselves an entertainment attorney can't possibly do so with a clear conscience who doesn't know this guy's name by heart throughout their entire journey. Burt Fields. All right, so you go through Harvard and yep. you graduate and you have a John Hausman-like paper chase kind of existence there. Yep. What's your next step? Like, what kind of law do you decide you want to be in? Well, I was hired to teach at Stanford then. Uh, you were hired to teach at Stanford after you graduated Harvard? Yeah. How is that possible? The dean from Stanford came back uh, looking for good students to start teaching a teaching career. So I did that, but unfortunately, the Korean War was going on, and... My draft board didn't think uh, <laughs> that they had to give deferments to a guy who was teaching in at Stanford. So I got a call from my father. It, it was, I, my grades had come through from my third year at, at, at law school, and he said, you got uh, six A's. And I said, but I only took five courses, Dad. He said, yeah, I know. The sixth is from your draft board. You're 1A. Congratulations. Oh. So I uh, I signed up as a lieutenant in JAG, which, by the way, I never thought they'd make a television series about that my branch of the service. And then I uh, I tried court-martials for two years. Uh, here and in England, and that's when I That's thought, what you did in the war. So yeah. instead of being a soldier, you were trying court-martials. That's right. Tell us a story. A lot safer. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a story that is unique and special about one of your court-martials, and, and did you used to win every case, or did you lose some? Oh, you had to lose some because when— Typically, it was so heavily weighted in favor of the prosecution that it was pretty hard to get acquittals in those days. Uh, and they, what they would do is they would take the people who just started who were green and make them defense lawyers. The experienced guys were the prosecutors. Then when you got experience, you started winning some cases. They'd make you a prosecutor. <laughs> so, the, uh, but I uh, had uh, some pretty successful defenses, and I had uh, I, I learned an enormous amount. And what's the craziest thing anybody did in the war that you were prosecuting them to court martial them? What's the craziest circumstance that ever happened? Oh, with I don't somebody? know. If there was anything that crazy uh it was a little bit like the Kane mutiny court martial if you remember that play it it it, it was i don't even want to use the young man's name i was defending a a sad sack a guy was just a hopeless hopeless airman 
Uh, he couldn't do anything right, and he'd been working in the officers' club, and he was accused of stealing from the officers' club. And in investigating it and then carrying out that investigation and cross-examination, it seemed that this veteran with every kind of medal you can think of, uh, Master Sergeant, was actually the thief. And I was able to show that. And on the stand, like in a movie, this guy collapsed and admitted that he had been taking the money and this poor schlumpy guy that I was defending did not. And he was acquitted. And afterwards, as in the play, the court-martial, the cane mutiny court-martial, I felt guilt because this sergeant had fought through the war. He'd been wounded. He had a purple heart, two purple hearts, as I recall it. And I had just destroyed him. And I thought, what? This is fun for you. You know, it's a big, big kick. You got an acquittal. You got this bum off. And what you did was probably send to Leavenworth, a guy who saved your ass by fighting against Hitler. Uh, that, anyway, that's, that's one I remember. That seems to me to be the toughest thing about being an attorney is that you're being hired by the person, you're being paid a sum of money to do a job. And for many lawyers, they find out during the conversations things that they're not going to tell to the judge or the jury. And they have to hold that inside that they know these things. But their job is to not necessarily worry about that. Their job is to figure out how to do that job and successfully. How do you, like, you know, you said to yourself when you were talking about New Mexico, yeah. which is kind of a correlation here. You said, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but you said, I'm kind of, I feel kind of bad. You know, I knew what was going on. I never went over there. I never said hello. I never yeah. did anything about it, but I knew. Mm -hmm. So when you're representing somebody like the lawyers for Tom Brady, and you know, you know if they know on the other side exactly what you know, you know they're going away. How do you deal with that inside, and how do you live with yourself knowing that you know things that maybe the world should know? Well, you put your finger on why I stopped doing criminal law. When I got out of the service, I thought I was a hotshot criminal lawyer. Because all my cases, those court martials, were all criminal cases. So I defended a, a number of uh, defendants. And, and it was, thinking back, it would be hard for me to remember any criminal defendant that I defended. And I got some acquittals uh, that was innocent. And one of them ended up killing somebody after I got him off of a lesser charge. And I said, I don't really want to do this anymore. Uh, I don't want to... At, at the beginning, it was fun. It was fighting the system and terrific. But as I did it and I saw what was happening, I said, let somebody else do that. I, I'm going to become a civil trial lawyer. I'm not going to 
I'm not going to get people off. Now, in a way, that's a shame because if everybody shared that attitude, people wouldn't get criminal defenses and people should have criminal defenses. And I don't mean to say everybody who's charged is guilty because they're not. But uh, for the most part, people don't get indicted uh, unless there's pretty strong evidence that they've done it because uh, prosecutors don't like to lose and they don't want to start a trial that they think they're going to lose. So usually there's some pretty good evidence. In any event, that was very early in my career. And that was the genesis of the sometimes famous table rubbing case. I don't know if you know about that. Tell us. Okay. Well, one of my first trials involved a a man who was arrested in a Skid Row theater uh, for groping a an undercover vice squad cop. And he apparently they had been standing at the urinal and according to the cop, my client groped him and my client denied that. And in cross-examination, I thought I had a question that I thought would work no matter what the answer was. And it was, isn't it true that my client just brushed you perhaps even accidentally for a second? And the cop bit the way I thought he wouldn't. Uh, and he said, no, Mr. Fields. He said, he stroked me for at least 45 seconds. And so... Of course, in closing argument, I said to the jury, take out your watches, and here we are. You've got an officer of the law. He's there. And by the way, officers of the law are accurate. This is not just somebody saying 45 seconds. I mean, he knows 45 seconds as opposed to 10 seconds. And here, and I went up to the jury rail like this, and I said, here they are. My client is standing there next to him at the urinal and well that's enough to make the offense right there but and I'm rubbing and rubbing on the jury rail and I say well that's now that's eight seconds <laughs> what do you think they're talking about while my client is committing this crime and he did I by the time I got to 18 seconds the jury was just roaring and they acquitted the guy in about five minutes <laughs> I'm sure guilty as hell. Do you think that channeled through you at the moment? Are those moments when you think about those things, do you chalk them up to your education? Do you chalk them up to your worldliness? Do you chalk them up to your experience? Or is it a lot of times it just channels through you like a line in your book that you're writing at, at a certain time? Well, it's a composite of all those things. Uh, human experience, education, doing it a lot, uh, sense of drama really because when you're trying cases you're really putting on a, a drama uh, for the court I mean it should be a truthful drama but it's a drama you want to make it uh, you want to get it across in dramatic terms and I, I sure I could have just stood up and said this guy's exaggerating you know he didn't get stroked for 45 minutes but to rub that jury rail in front of the jurors and have them looking at their watches 
that made a little drama out of it. Uh, you know, Billy Rose once said, whatever you say in life, serve a little dressing on it. And so I, I try to do that kind of thing in, in trying cases. I make it entertaining for the judge or the jury. And judges sit there and they're bored all day. So if you can make it exciting and interesting, it, it, that's a plus. What advice do you have for the young person in business? It might be young lawyer, young person wanting to get into business, not sure exactly how they're going to get to the next level and to have the kind of career that you've had. Well, it's hard to talk about different professions and different jobs. I mean, there's no formula. If I had to hit on things that apply over a broad field, I would say, well, hey, be smart. <laughs> it helps. Uh, but you can't do anything about that. But prepare. Work hard. Try to understand what other people are saying or trying to communicate to you. Try to find a way to allow them to reach their goals while you reach you without sacrificing yours. Uh, try to understand your opponent and what's or your business rival and what are their advantages and disadvantages. Try to take a logical approach uh, rather than an emotional approach to competition and adversity. But that's a lot of generalization, you know. It, it, uh, you really have to take it one case at a time. Everybody's case is very individual and very different. So I'm always hesitant to give advice like that. Uh, you know, I, I don't take my own advice all the time. This next person is a guy who I always love talking to even though he might have been a quarter of a step off from the rest of the population. He was a genius. His mind worked like no other person I'd ever met in my life. He was a guy who could do the smartest material to the lowest common denominator material and everything in between. A man who knew what it was like to work the largest crowds in the world, state fairs, comedy clubs, theaters, anything. Sometimes I think it's sad that a guy of his caliber and everything he knew about the business is only known really well for two items, a sledgehammer and a watermelon. But I can guarantee you, behind the fruit and that hammer, was a guy who was really, really incredibly fascinating and extraordinary. Gallagher. Did you ever do a full special where you just did all your cerebral material from start to finish? Or did you ever do a show where you did a special that was all props and all non-cerebral stuff for the entire no, special I, no variety is the spice of life and the secret of entertainment if you change it refreshes the audience they habituate 
if you poke somebody in the same place for a while, then the poke don't work. And when you move it to another place, it, it's hot. I had psychology in, in college. Pigeons, it's all the same. Flatworms, people in, the, in an audience. Here's the deal. I'm not responsible for the whole show. I'm about half. If the audience isn't there, if the energy isn't in the room and in the audience, you can't make it happen. Can't. That's why I do my specials in some other place in the United States. I hate these audiences out here in L.A. The studios are so cold, and the crew is over there talking about their benefit package in their iron jeans over by the donuts. And it's, I hate it. It's just not fun. It's not funny. It's just the worst. Every time I did a talk show, I would get half of the reaction that I would normally get in a nightclub. But people are twice as impressed with it as you would think. And so it worked out okay. But I always thought it was nuts because it always was a letdown. I remember when you fired your second manager, Gary Proper. Sometimes as a manager, you hear of other people being fired and you think, okay, how are they going to recover? What are they going to do? This is a guy who he worked together. It was big. And then very short after, I found out that he was managing another guy that I thought was slightly similar to you in some ways, uh, Scott Thompson, a.k.a. Carrot Top. Tell me about that. Well, Gary took that guy that I'd hired to carry my girlfriend's suitcases, my bus driver. And Scott driver. Thompson was your bus driver? No, he took the guy. Gary took my bus driver. He took my sound man. He took the striped shirt, put the mic on a wire around your neck, and pulled props out of a box. But Gary said that I was over with, that I was uh, 24 to 36 and the real market is 18 to 24. And so he was just going to go with Scotty and they were going to do younger younger material. But then he also managed the, the Amazing Jonathan. And I married the Amazing Jonathan uh, recently. Uh, I, they got me a preacher's certificate and I married him. So it seems like throughout this uh, career of yours, you've had people who've taken you down over and over and over again people it seems like whether purposely or whatever or through your own naivete about the business you've lost back end on specials my mom and you lost the millions of dollars for the situation with teenage mutant and jim turtles you're in a situation where gary proper you fire him and then he takes another guy and basically takes pieces of what you are to make him big and then you have a situation with your brother after one of your heart attacks where you let him go out and do your act. Do old jokes. I had a lot of shows. You know, I had eight or nine shows at that time. I told him to do jokes from the first three or four. But why? Well, because he wanted money. And I told him to just go and get it himself. He could make about 100000 working in little places. You know, America is very big. There are tertiary, fourth, fifth tier markets. I'm never going to. With 100 people, $20, 2000 a night, 50 nights, you have $100,000. Okay, so you made a deal with him that he could only work these these lower-level markets to- oh, and smaller rooms. I made a deal rooms. with uh, a club owner that I trusted 
uh, Tom Sobel, of course, who owns the Comedy Caravan in uh, or did in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And I said to Tom, "Will you represent him and make sure it's clear?" And so they had a $12 ticket price. But then uh, my brother is not easy to work with, and the girls in his office didn't want to deal with him anymore. And so the new producers that my brother met said, you're giving away the fact that it ain't Gallagher with your ticket price. If you charge 22 they they'd think it's Gallagher. And so that's what they started doing, and it was ruining my ticket sales because people thought it was my brother. You know, he didn't care. I mean, he's a schmuck. He thought I can do what I want, and he could lie. My dad, you know, my dad loved lying and cheating. He he would revel in really good scams. You know, that's my how do you, my dad would be impressed with. So you gave your act away for Just nothing. Just some old jokes. I'm not doing them jokes. I don't even want to say them. I don't want them in my mouth. Everything you do kills everything you could have done. Every time you tell a joke you already know, you ruined an opportunity to create a new joke with a new dynamic situation. This is what I do. That's why I got 14 shows. I can't believe And I only did that in 10 years. I mean, I'd have had more shows if Showtime had stuck with me. Talk about people letting me down. I made that damn company. At least I started it. And uh, you know what I did to the president? I put together... The president of Showtime. Yeah, Jules Heimowitz. I put together, to find out what he was like, I pretended to um, that there was this real estate company in New York that would take you around in a, in a Lincoln Town car with a phone. This is when phones were really new. And I was at a cocktail party with him, and I told him, I know this real estate company. Oh, it's great. We're looking for a new apartment. And so I gave him the phone number of my, you know, it was the girlfriend who kicked me out of Jim's house, Madeline Calder. And so I made a deal with her later on. I pulled her back into the deal. And um, so anyway, he sent his new wife, who was a little trollop. See, the, if you have an old Jewish wife, that's just fine. But if you have one of these show business chicks with a whole bunch of pinholes in her ear and everything, a little, then they don't want you in their building. You have to pass the building, the board in New York. You see, and we could never get him past the board because the little trollop wife would go by. But I learned how he, um, what he, how he's with money how he tried to buy things because I could never deal with him. I kept telling him, give me more money and it'll be on the screen. It's not about cheating me. I'm spending it all. Don't you want a quality product? He took the wallpaper off the wall of his former apartment and it was rolled up and in a temporary apartment that he was while he was looking for his new place. That's my problem. I'm dealing with a guy who saved wallpaper. Have you ever had somebody say, well, I improved this apartment $50,000. Well, I don't like your improvements. Well, I'll just take them with me then, right? And that's what he did. He took the wallpaper off the wall, rolled it up, and he had this guy. I'm no, How am I going to get any money out of this guy? And he's rolling up wallpaper he always wanted he wanted a library he wanted park avenue address with a side entrance all blah 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 i also got david letterman in that car <laughs> and i learned a lot about dave and how he uh tries to buy things so please give the people out there what advice you have to get to the next level <clears throat> i wouldn't work don't worry about the money just get in front of an audience and change what you do, and you'll learn more about your material. The last thing you want to do is do it the same every night in a routine. 
you'll learn a lot more about talking and the essence of what's really funny by varying the routine. Just go up there loosely with an idea of what you think is funny and see how you weave it every night. Because if you can't add, if you can't write, you can't ad lib. And then you're just going to be boring and predictable. You have to play the moment. Comedy is about the now, like dogs and babies. They are in the now. And you have to be, that's where you have to win. And if it's if you got something you want to say and you're just going to say it anyway and it doesn't fit the moment, you're a loser. Next up is a person who really changed the trajectory of my career with his support of my artists and being able to utilize them in many, many of his productions and at his comedy club in Los Angeles, the one in New York that was owned by his wife, and everywhere in between. I never thought that anybody would treat me when I got to town. I felt like an outsider, but never when I was around him. He always invited me to that round table in his comedy club in the back to sit down with him, and I shared many, many drinks with some of the biggest people in the business. Like I said, he treated me like I belonged when I probably thought I didn't belong. And to this day, I want to do the same for anybody I meet because I know what it's like when you come into a a group when you're not invited. And he saw something in me that maybe I saw in myself or maybe I didn't see in myself. But regardless, I'll always be grateful. Bud Friedman. What are some of your greatest memories in the 70s of the stand-ups who were coming in and were experiencing an audience that really wasn't, had never known comedy? And, oh. and you're basically for the first time bringing in a kind of entertainment that hadn't been seen in New York in a sh- like a showcase of oh, comedians in New York. So, uh, who were some of the people that 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 you saw that uh, really made an impact on you? I know you said Lenny Bruce earlier on in your career, but at your club or at you the were, club, or well, Rodney Dangerfield was well. Richard Pryor first. Richard Pryor was uh, brilliant, uh, and uh, he and Ron Carey. Ron Carey uh, was uh, an actor also. He was on Bonnie Miller. Yeah. And he did all of Mel Brooks movies. And he was one of the funniest people in the world. And he and Richard would act out a scene. And David Astor, with the one little microphone we had, would sit in a corner and tell a story. And they would act it out. And it was sheer brilliance. Surely, sheer brilliance, I should say. And uh, that was uh, memorable, memorable nights. And Ron Carey, who was very Catholic, did a lot of Catholic material, which was pretty, you know, trend-setting in those days. And uh, he would go on uh, four shows, two on Friday, two on Saturday, sell every show, which is unheard of for us. We didn't know what was going on. And back then it was all word of mouth, obviously, because oh, there was no internet, nothing. It's no just, there's internet. no flyers being passed out. People just said, hey, but we got to see this guy. Barry, we got more publicity on that club than you can imagine without a press agent because people— would tell people. The owner of P.J. Clark's used to come in all the time. He brought in Bill Slocum, who wrote for the Journal American, one of the papers we used to have more than. 
one paper in New York. Uh, another gal did uh, some um, typing for a guy from the World Telegram. Instead of paying me, she says, come and hear me sing. He wrote about the club. But um, you only have 74 legal seats Well, now. then we added. We kept expanding. Uh, we took over one store and then another store. But it was never a monstrous place. Well, we ended up, by the time I left, we had a bar that would hold about 30 people. And we had um, 210 But nobody could seats. see the show in the bar. No, but we had 210 seats. But like on a Saturday night, you know, when people, the word of the mouth is, yeah. this is the place to go. Like, right. wh- how, how oh, did people get in? Oh, the was around the block. We did three shows, sometimes four on a Saturday night. So it was great. I loved it. You know, you can come in. You know, <laughs> you stay there. You know. And so, and so, when you when you expanded, I, I want to first talk about, if you don't mind, no, it I, might be a sensitive sub- subject, but she was a big part of my life when I first started in New York in the eighties. Was your ex wife Silver? Oh, and so sorry. after you moved out to L.A. and you guys uh, stopped being together. She uh, ran the club there in New York for right. in the eighties and part of that time. Did you come to L.A. after you uh, got divorced, or did you come to L.A. before you got divorced? No, no, before. We moved out in 75, 74, actually. Opened the club in 75. and The we, club on Melrose? On Melrose. Um, all right, so you come here, and when does all the shit hit the fan and you stop be, being a couple anymore? What year was that? I would say 77, 78, uh, 77 and 78, she moved back to New York, and uh, Chris lasted a year with her, and then she bought him out, and uh, he came out here, and I gave him a job as a manager, bartender for a while, and then he got a job at uh, as an agent at ICM, and then he got uh, Showtime, I mean, uh, HBO. And so when you opened the comedy club here in the 70s, are you said, so there were oh, no there was, other comedy Yes, the club. comedy store. The comedy store was already a year got it. when I got out here. And when you came out and you opened the improv, tell me the reaction you had from the uh, comedy store and uh, the uh, flamboyant owner of the comedy store. And well, uh, talk a little about her and your relationship with her and uh, Mitzi Shore. Yes, Mitzi. And, and, and tell me about, because normally when somebody comes in, like when I started doing comedy clubs in Boston and running them, if I opened the comedy club anywhere near another comedy club, they would always try to blackball me, tell the comics, say, if you work there, you're not going to work there. Yeah. And so I want to talk about the beginnings, and then we're going to talk about that strike that happened, which a lot of okay. comedians don't know about. But there was a strike in Los Angeles with comedians. But tell me, you come in, was Mitzi happy? Was she unhappy? Mitzi was furious. She think, stole. She, she claims I stole her idea. Uh, and the, the founding of the comedy store was by her ex-husband, Sammy Shore, and a guy named Rudy DeLuca. Do you know Rudy? No. Rudy used to write for Ron Carey, and he used to hang around the improv. And then he wrote for Sammy Shore. Now he writes, co-writes with Mel Brooks. He's upgraded a little. But he called me and said, we're thinking of opening a club out here, uh, Sammy and I. Like the improv, would you be upset? I said, no. I never thought I'd move out here. You know? So I said, fine. So... The improv is based upon, I mean, the comedy store is based upon the improv. And when I used to come out to visit, Mitzi treated me very nicely. The minute she heard I was opening, uh, Persona Non Grata, and she so said... So did you ever go to the club after you opened and she said, you're not allowed here? Get no, out of here. I never went over there. So you've because never she, been to the comedy store in thir- 40 years? I don't think so. 
Interesting. I was maybe once. Did she ever come to the improv? Oh, no. Oh, no. No, no, no. All right. So so tell me the first comedians you remember that sort of crossed the lines. Oh, I can tell you exactly. She would say, if you work for me, you cannot work at the improv. Jay Leno says, now Jay, uh, as you said earlier, I managed him in New York. And Jay came out here about a year, well, just about the time the comedy store opened. And he was working there, as was Jimmy Walker and Freddie Prince, all of whom started with me in New York. And uh, Freddie was a big, big star at the time, so was Jimmy. They both had their own sitcoms. And Jay was not, Um, but he was still the comics comic. And Jay said, well, uh, if you won't let me work both places, I guess I'll go to the improv. So, you know, Bud used to manage me, and I started there. Well, you can you can work both places. So she said she you can work down. both places. And, and who was the next person? And Freddie Prince, she didn't even bother to say anything to him. And uh, and Jimmy Walker was a pussy and stayed there. I don't know. I he never came to the improv much at all, which was really no loss. But that's another story. But uh, but uh, Charlie Fleischer, whom I had nothing to do with. In now, New for York, those of you who don't know, no. Charlie Fleischer is famous for something. He was the voice of Roger, Roger Rabbit. Rabbit right. uh, and Char- Charles Fleischer is probably probably one of the most brilliant comedians that probably never got to the point where people thought he should go, but he was an incredible improvisational genius of the level. Oh. I'm sure Robin Williams, if he were sitting here, would say Charles Fleischer is the level of improvisational genius yeah. on stage that I am. Yeah, They're very close. But uh, but anyway, Charlie, who was completely unknown, hadn't done you know Roger Rabbit at the time, said, "Well, I'm going to work there too," and she backed down on him also. And but for the most part, you know, she had her clique, and I had mine, and uh, and I didn't care except that, you know, in New York, I had a great relationship with Rick Newman of the. Uh, uh, Catch a rising star. star, and we would call up who's sitting around. I need somebody, and vice versa, and we were fine with people working both clubs, and it was good for the comics to develop faster. That's what happened when I owned my club, uh, the Boston Comedy Club on West Third Street. Oftentimes, you'd call the other clubs if your sh- a com- comedian didn't show up, or you'd get a call from your club yeah. from the comedy seller. Listen, who do you have? Our guy didn't show up. Is a very common practice, even if they hated you. They would call you, and, and they would do that. So tell me, uh, so the comedians that were working for you, were they allowed to work? Like, let's say there was a big comic that was working for you that hadn't worked her place. Who was the first big comic that was working for you and, and, and wasn't working at the comedy store who then went over to the comedy store and she allowed to work there? Oh, I don't. I really don't know. And you didn't and care. And I didn't care. I don't care. I know. I didn't keep track of that. And so uh, then, why did the strike happen? And what what exactly what was the year of the strike? Why did the strike happen? Yes, the strike happened in seventy nine. You, what's your part? What's her part? That the strike. It was all her fault. <laughs> <laughs> um, Is anything your fault? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. What happened was Mitzi had the original club, uh, two hundred seats or something, and then she took over what was Ciro's. And she's got like 400 seats there. And she put in Rodney Dangerfield, nothing, business-wise. Then she put in Jackie Mason, nothing. Then one night she puts in unknown David Letterman, Jay Leno, and I forgot the third guy, sold out. And she started putting her best acts from the comedy store in the big room, and they did great business. She wasn't paying them. 
What were a you, penny? What were you paying your acts nothing. at the improv? You nothing. weren't paying them nothing, nothing. anything. Nothing. And so no one was paying any comedians no. anything. We paid at the time. Uh, cab fare in New York, but that's but all. But in L.A., nobody paid anything. No, no, and uh, and the comics got a little upset with her, based upon all the money she's making in the big room with, you know, the unknown acts. Or virtually unknown acts. She paid Rodney to come in for that. Yes, and she paid Jackie Mason, but she wouldn't pay these guys. And they said, fuck this. And they went on strike. What year was that, do you think? 79. 79. So the strike had nothing to do with the improv. No. I thought they went on strike because they wanted money from you, too. Oh, they wanted money from me, too. However, before they could get to me, somebody else got to me and burned down the showroom. It's rumored... That it was somebody in Mitzi's employ. We've never been able to prove it, nor can I say it for a fact. So, so she'd sue me. But I uh, thought you burned it down for the insurance money. No, okay. no you're looking at the, the the one Jew that didn't make a penny on the fire. Maybe it was Bob Fisher that burned it. Yeah, down. that could be. He's a vicious little son of a bitch. <laughs> uh, well, maybe Mike Lacey, that son of a bitch. And for those of you who don't know, I have these gentlemen. They're both princes. They're the only club owners I like. Mike Lacey is the, uh, yeah, <laughs> runs Comedy the Magic. Comedy Magic Club, club. in Hermosa Beach, where actually Jay Leno, every Sunday night, does a show every Sunday night. I'm to not here to promote material. other clubs. <laughs> Unbelievable. Un-fucking-believable. I have to give the audience some information. You can say a club. You're not the only horse in town, you know. I understand that, but I'm the only horse on the show with you right now. <laughs> Remember that. And I'm all saddled up, ready to go. Did so you have this much case, fun with Mark Marin? Oh, no. no, no. <laughs> Who? Does no. he know you shit on him like this? <laughs> no, go Sorry. So, anyway. So, anyway, I'm out of business, basically. I have this little dining room in front. And do you remember Dottie Archibald? No. Dottie was a comedian and a friend of ours. And her husband was one of these super goys who, uh, he was uh, an engineer or something, but he could do electrical, he could do plumbing, carpentry. He put me back in business in one and a half days. He ran a line from the alley through the debris to the front room. We converted the little dining room into a showroom with 74 seats. The same amount I had in New York. And we were like that for about eight months because the insurance was held by the landlord and he wouldn't start building or couldn't start building until he got out, worked everything out with the insurance company. So we were, you were, we were down for a long time. It obviously depleted my little bank account. Plus, I just went through a divorce. I lost the, the I, in the divorce, uh, Silver got the New York Club and I kept the L.A. Club. And the New York Club was worth five times what the L.A. Club was worth even before the fire. Until five years later after. Yeah, well, now, you know. But um, so, uh, you know, and my kids had gone, you know, back to New York with their mother. So I was really depressed. I was down. And uh, anyway, um, we finally got it opened. And uh, I'll tell you who went on the first night. On that night, that was Robin Williams, who did a benefit for me. And the next night, Andy Kaufman did a benefit for me. And then I had some money in the bank, and I was able to continue and go on. But I still wasn't doing, you know, that well. And it was a big hole to get out of. And uh, it wasn't until 81 that we got evening at the improv, and that changed everything. Closing out this episode is somebody who, I don't know, you couldn't help but love this guy. He did everything. 
every different lane he seemed to do. He was a talented host. He was a great sitcom actor. He was a wonderful director. It's incredible all the things that this guy could do. He was a wonderful actor. There wasn't anything this guy couldn't do. But more importantly, this guy was beloved. More importantly, this guy was loved by every single person in the business. And every time I ran into him, every time I was around him, every time I talked to him, he was always so generous and so kind and so caring and so attentive. He was a person who made you feel like you were the only person in the world. And I'm honored that I had the opportunity to know him and call him my friend. Bob Saget. You've done every cylinder in the engine of the entertainment business. One of the most financially successful people when you consider the length of time of Full House, Fuller House, America's Funniest Home Videos. <laughs> so I think what the audience would love to know is you just got engaged. Yeah. You have a beautiful woman. Why not go on vacation with her to some exotic island and enjoy the time you have with her than going well, we out do. to we... the Ha Ha's Chuckle Hut in Peoria, Illinois? Right. I, I look at examples like... You know, you can have an island like Johnny Depp, but, you know, I think he would have rather been in Denver at the Comedy Works than what happened to him. But I I need to work because I can't really enjoy a vacation unless I feel like I've put a huge body of work behind me. But you did. You did the and special. I do, but I did, I did the special, and then um, and then I, I went with uh, my fiancé and two of my daughters to Cabo. And then um, we went away for a week, and then my fiance and I went. She doesn't have a name; we just call her my fiance. <laughs> She's she. Uh, we went to do the Bill Maher show in Hawaii, the thing that he does. And we played Maui and Oahu, so that that was back to work, in a way. But there's something incredibly satisfying about working really hard. I have I just have ingrained in me from my dad this work ethic thing, and then I feel good. Then I feel like I. Uh, to put it uh, offensively, got my nut, you know. I, and then I directed this movie that you helped me with. Thank you very Benjamin. much, Benjamin. Benjamin, which is coming out in the fall. And the premise is my my son, we believe, is on crystal meth. So it's a serious premise with a dark comedy twist to it. And the intervention is called on Facebook by my girlfriend Marilyn Rice Cub in the movie, and playing my girlfriend. And then uh, all of a sudden. Craziness ensues because Rob Corddry is the gynecologist that leads the intervention, and that's not who you would have lead an intervention. So it's just the people around you are more screwed up usually than the kid with the problem. So they're the ones with the problem. But but all, all I was going to say was when I worked on that, that was a 15-day shoot, which was, as you know, when we talked, insane. It's, a, it's not enough time. You know, 21 is – you could make it in 21 days – but a 15-day to tell a, a real story. And we did it. We did the best we could. And I, I love the movie. And then it comes out in the fall. And it's something I'm crazy proud of because you spend months in prep. I spent seven years trying to get it made. It was uh, written by this guy Joshua Turk, a young writer, and a producer, Nicholas Tabarak. And 
you know, Tabarak. That's it. Know your producer's name. Um, and it's a, uh, it's something special. Did somebody tell you long ago, don't put money into your own project? Yeah. I was told that by everybody. So how do you convince investors knowing you know that? Well, when you make a movie for half a million dollars, they're going to get their money back. You know, when you go this, I mean, I, I'm not a guy that can go on Kickstarter and go, hey, please, everybody, uh, help support my film. When they're going, well, wait a second. It says here on Google that Bob's net worth is, which is not true. But um, it just, getting the investors to believe in it. There's also something nice about, um, and it's going to sound stupid because it's not how business works, but getting someone's money back for them and then making them money. I find satisfaction in that. I, I, that that's me like I used to be a deli clerk. <laughs> I went I went to a college at Temple University. I lived at home. I had nothing. Um, I made films, student films. I won the student Oscar for a movie I made about my nephew that had his face reconstructed, and I, I didn't. I didn't have a dollar. I mean, I, I took all the money into uh, taking out a girlfriend and buying film stock. Remember back then, you used to buy the, the short ends. ends uh, yeah, and it was sixteen millimeter. Yeah, so you could go to movie houses and buy the short ends, which was the unused footage. Yeah, and that's how you'd make the movies. Yeah, that's cheaper. accurate. You could you could go buy, or someone would the film that would go in the magazine. You the, those were short ends also, where you would buy that would be the raw stock, but um, none of that exists anymore. It's all digital, and if it had been, I would have probably made better product because you could shoot more. You won the student Oscar. How could you do better? I'd have a film career. <laughs> Get to direct whatever I wanted. And I thought, and I got into USC, and I was going to go there. And I went for three days. And um, then the dean gave some speech like, well, if you're lucky, you can win a Student Academy Award. And I was sitting there going, I just won one. You know, bitch, I'm out of here. And I ended up working at the comedy store. Mitzi said, you should work here. So I worked at the comedy store. Uh, you know, at that time it was pre-strike, so. So how I, long did it take you to pass? I passed uh, the moment I came to L.A. when I won the student Oscar. I brought my guitar. I went on stage at the comedy store, and she asked me to be a regular. And she never really liked guitar acts that much. No, she but liked there was Dennis Blair. Likeable. Remember Dennis Blair when he came? Yeah, to... and and Kelly Rogers, she kind of uh, liked. Um, and she really liked um, Denny Johnson. Yeah. And Denny was a guitar act, but he, Denny had a couple great songs. He had a, that song, You're an Asshole, which was like the best song. It was really pretty. I think I'll sing it. But, <laughs> but she, um, she just took a liking to my likability. But it didn't mean she, she was going to be easy to deal with. You know, one time I was in Vegas. She had the comedy store at the Dunes Hotel. And this is like seven, eight years of me going to acting classes, me trying to, you know, doing a improv, paying to be in the Groundlings acting class. And you're living in a studio on Palm. I was living in Palm. Did you have a roommate or? I did not. And then I moved. Well, Dave Coulier came out to L.A. and needed a place to stay and he crashed on my couch. Was he from Philly too? He was from Detroit. How do you know him? Uh, Mike Binder, a mutual friend from Detroit, who I knew from L.A., said, my friend Dave's coming out. Uh, and I met Dave in Detroit at a club called the Delta Lady on Woodward, and I liked him, and he seemed like a good guy. So way before Full House, we were buddies. And then I would I moved to Hollywood. I lived on Camino Palmero, the famous, beautiful street, Ozzie and Harriet's house at the end. 
When you were in Philly, were you starting with the amazing wit, that great prop act? I knew the amazing wit. And Wayne Cotter? I liked Wayne Cotter. Great monologist. Yeah. Tom Wilson used to open for me, and he played the tuba. And, of course, he was Biff in the Back to the Future movies. And who else? Craig Shoemaker opened for me. Of course, the love master. A love master. And then he retired, and now he's back. (laughs) How did he retire? I don't know. I mean, I don't see myself at 90 you know, doing stand-up. I in see you five... at 90 doing stand-up. You know why? Because you have a Rickle-esque quality about you where it's almost like there's a channeling of Rickles in you and the work there ethic. Is from and the... knowing him and, and from just loving him. And he influenced me a lot. And there there is a work ethic about it. But I want to direct more movies because I love that too. But that's up to the people. No, it's not <laughs> up to the people. It's, no, it's up, up to, to you me. now. You could choose to do anything you wanted. Now, I, I will recommend anybody to see this film. Well, the point I'm trying to make is that you have a choice to do any movie you want to do as a director and producer. Well, I don't have that choice. I can't. No one's going to give me a $60 million movie. $500,000 movies. You have a choice. Yeah, I can of get, what a, you I can get a $500,000 movie. And made. so you decide to do this lane of a movie. And I'm not saying that it's not great because it is great. Well, I'm I have the answer. I'll tell you why. I have three kids. I. I was um, misunderstood as a kid. I was a 15-year-old boy that couldn't have been more miserable. Everybody around me was, in my life, dying. I lost two sisters by the time while I was in my 20s. I had lost both my sisters, one to scleroderma, hardening of the skin disease, and the other to a brain aneurysm. It should be known that Bob does this incredible benefit every year for his sister who died of scleroderma. Comedians will do anything to work on that benefit. It's so nice, and and I will uh, just say it. I mean, over the past 25 years, I guess 28 years ago, Robin Williams was, was the first person that did it because the woman that founded it, Sharon Monsky, had the disease, and she was five foot four, and you could see that the disease is readable in a lot of people's faces because their skin starts to tense up, and there's too much collagen. It makes your skin taut. It's very hard to explain, but it's an autoimmune disease and vascular, and comedians have, we, Sharon Monsky, this great lady, came up with cool comedy hot cuisine, and we've done We've raised $46 million in 25 years. Incredible. And that money has gone to research that has truly helped people. I know people that are in what you would call remission. They are, no, this, it stopped being aggressive. And 28 years ago, there was no remission. My, my sister died in 94. I think she would have had a real shot to be alive if we'd have known. And I, I'd have taken her to Johns Hopkins, one of the centers we fund that has thousands of patients with the disease. You started your life with so much adversity. Right. Do you feel that's what drove you to be funny? I mean, yeah, I started doing comedy. They were both alive. And then uh, once I was in my 20s, um, I lost my 34-year-old sister. She was six years older than me. And then I'd already been out here in L.A. and, and doing pretty well. I think Full House was on the air when my other sister, Gay, passed away. So gallows humor, it's a disconnect. It's, I can't deal with this right now. Let me tell you about my balls. You know, it's, and, and, <laughs> and it's just in the middle of uh, burying somebody and crying and losing it. And it's a very bipolar way of, of existing. Uh, being a kid, being, a, I kind of locked in at that 
I locked in at nine, really. My stand-up is an extension of a nine-year-old that knows a bunch of words and has some life experience. Now I'm about 16, I think, in, in my stand-up. But I, I, at 15, I had been so unhappy. I moved in the middle of ninth grade from Philly to Encino because I wanted to learn about materialism. So we moved here. But <laughs> I my, you want to learn about Pauly Shore. I wanted to know all about the entire Shore family. Um, and then I moved again between uh, 11th and 12th grade. So I had no friends. I had a couple friends. So to survive, I was trying to be funny. And so it was really kind of probably cookie cutter version of a guy or girl that is an outsider. I was clearly an outsider. And the way to get people to like me would be to make student films, put people in them from the class. You know, I was very manipulative. You know, it would, it would be like a producer uh, in these past few years, all the producers that have slept with all these actresses and everything. My version was, will you be my friend? Be in my movie. You know, there's no, no sex involved. I'm, I'm 15. And that's when you became an insider? Uh, yeah, I really went introverted at 15. And so there takes us back to the question that started this whole thing. That's why I couldn't let go of this movie, Benjamin. I couldn't let go of this project because I related to the boy. I related to the lunacy around him, the family around him, the relatives that come from God knows where. Every time I'm of Jewish descent, I don't know if you can tell. Thanks for the free sandwich, by the way. No problem. And the, and the parking Thanks validation. for telling me that you forgot your wallet, by the way. I never do that. <laughs> Dave Coulier always did that. Dave Coulier is not Jewish. He's Catholic, but I, I don't know where he You made him this. convert, though, didn't you? I think he just hung out with too many Jewish people because he shows up every time we go to dinner or lunch. I forgot my wallet. It's like, what? And it's got like a, I left my wallet in the car. Dave, you're driving a Jeep with no roof and there's no lock on the glove box. Um Anyway, but that was an outsider's point of view. Benjamin is watching all these relatives and all these people. And a lot of times it would be a shiva uh, or, or if you go to a wake or if you go to something where someone passes away, all these relatives come in. And that's what a dark comedy also. I've seen a couple. We've seen some good dark comedies about that. Um, it's like, who are these people? How are they making us feel good? You know, or a movie like Home for the Holidays, which is a really good movie about when you mash the family together that isn't necessarily even family. Here's your cousin from Remember Them. I mean, there's a thing in this in this film with Dave Foley and Sherry O'Terry. When I say to Benjamin, remember your uh, your Aunt uh, Clarice and Uncle Mitch? I think you met them when you were a baby. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, that's like no one's thinking. You know, that's the problem is... A lot of parents are raising kids, and they're just trying to get by, and it's hard to raise kids. But they're not connecting with what they're saying to the kid. What advice would you have for the young person growing up in a small town, moving around, all the death and all the tragedy and all the outcasts in high school and grade school? And What advice do you have for somebody to get to the kind of level and have the kind of career that you've had? Even if they wanted to be a doctor, even if they wanted to do something to better themselves, they have to work their ass off. They just have to, they have to somehow not want to be famous, but want to be really good, which is really, really hard. Find something that you love and do it as well as you can do it. 
So if you write stuff, you know, just take Louis Anderson's stuff. Just take that. I'm just saying steal it. I'm telling the young people <laughs> listening, steal Louis Anderson's stuff. Just do his stuff <laughs> and use that and go on TV doing Louis Anderson's material. And you will be the talk of the Internet. Uh, now, I would recommend, you know, talk your voice. Uh, guys, girls, aardvarks listening, anybody that wants to move forward. If you want to be a stand-up, you know, come up with original stuff that you think it sets you apart. It could be about your life. It could be about the world. It could be, it could be a, a, a damn hacky guitar act. But just you won't open for me if that's what you're doing. But, <laughs> but you know, just it's it's a special thing to be able to be in the arts, and that's how I look at it. It's not being a comic, not being an oh he's an actor, you know. Don't don't listen to him. It's just learning your craft, learn it, and just do it all the time. Everybody always, you know, you watch the Oscars, and half of it is is the person looks into the camera and says that little kid sitting at home. You know, you're in a cornfield. You're in your own poop. You know, you just ate your brother because you're a cannibalistic family. You can make it. You can get off that sofa that your parents have duct taped you to, and you can you can go out and you could be standing here one day. Um, the whole thing's not about winning awards. The whole thing is about doing work that affects people, and it's not just for you. It, you're doing it for other people. You're giving something to people. You're giving something to others. And that's that's what I think a lot of people make it all about themselves. And that that's what gets old. That's what gets old with, you know, Instagram and all the narcissistic stuff that I'm part of. Can't help it because I just adore thinking about myself. <laughs> but but doing it for other people and entertaining other people is, uh, is a pretty wonderful thing. Not just going out there going, I'm going to get rich, which is, it's nice to have money, but um, that stuff comes if you do, you put in your time and you do everything with as much nobility as you can in this crazy, whacked out world. All right, that concludes episode two of The Ones We Lost. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. These people are so special. And I always want them to be remembered. And thank you so much for listening. Again, I'm very, very grateful to all of you. I really appreciate it. You have no idea. And I wish you all the best that life has to offer. Truly. Thank you. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your 
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.